Hello, everyone, and welcome to tonight's 5 by 15 event with Stuart Lee and Jarrett Kobeck. It's great to see you all here this evening. So I've got a couple of housekeeping things. There's going to be book signing at the end, and there's going to be plenty of time for your questions, so have a think about those as we go along. And first up, it is really my great honor to introduce the legendary writer and comedian Stuart Lee. Um, he is going to introduce to us um, Jarrett Kobeck, so please give Stuart Lee a massive round of applause. Thank you. Yes. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking Julian Assange has let himself go. <laughs> so, right, um, it gives me a, a great pleasure to do this because I get to ask uh, Jarrett lots of questions that I would like to know the answer to, which it would be weird if I was just to do it to him, if I was just to talk to him for an hour non-stop, because you're here. It seems legitimate. Um, I was first aware of uh, Jarrett Quebec's work because he emailed me about five years ago and said, I am a writer. Um, can I use a line from one of your jokes as a title of a novel? And I said yes, because I, I always approve everything like that and I never give any thought to what happens to it. Um, and it amuses me that all these little fragments of things go out there as titles of obscure punk songs and things and I never have any never know what they are and um, then the book came out and it got really good reviews and I read it and I thought it was brilliant which is a turn up for the books because most people that use things from me are terrible and um, uh, but I, I hope you're aware of, of Jarrett Kubik's work because it's great his book I Hate the Internet from, um, two, from 2016 was well, he seemed to be of the, of the opinion that there was no point writing a novel now which didn't address the existence of the internet because it's changed all discourse. It was written in a short, terse style, as if it were designed for distribution in fragments on social media, so the, the style of it reflected the subject material in a brilliant way. Jarrett seems to be involved in a love-hate relationship with the idea of the novel. Um, writing about this book, in this book, in his new book, he says... This is, after all, a novel written in an era when the entire purpose of fiction has been outmoded and destroyed by vast social changes. And um, Jarrett's books sort of reflect that. He seems to be trying to find a new way, a new way of writing a novel, of, of saying what a novel is, um, and, and uh, un understands that the, the way that it was formed, the way the, no the novel as we understand it was formed, reflects a society and reading habits and discourse that doesn't really exist anymore. And, um, and I hate the internet as well as attacking social media, the companies that own it, the way information is distributed, seem to be involved in an interrogation of the form of the novel itself. The next book was The Future Won't Be Long, which he wrote um, before uh, I Hate the Internet about the same characters. Um, and it was a New York set novel that had the feel of the kind of books that made stars of Bretton Easton Ellis or Jamie Kinnery in the 80s. Um, it had a more traditional feel than I Hate the Internet. There were lots of characters having dialogues with each other about, about, with each other about ideas in rooms. It was, it, it was almost as if Jarrett had decided to show that he could do um, the, conventional, uh, the conventional novel. He could nod towards it if he had to, but he'd chosen not to. And this new book, 
only Americans burn in hell. Uh, it's a sort of both of those. He, he introduces an idea of the sort of story he could have told and is then constantly frustrated in his attempts to tell it by his own annoyance about various aspects of modern life and history and can't seem to get the novel done. What ought to be, what ought to be crucial, exciting parts of the narrative are dispensed with very quickly and very simple language and that the distractions from the narrative become massively inflated so that they become the centre of the book. Um, and I've loved all of the work of his that I've read enormously. And uh, so what we're going to do tonight is uh, I'm going to bring Gerald on in a sec. He's going to do a reading from this new book. Then we're going to talk for a bit and then we're going to take uh, questions um, and then we should be down by about ten past eight, um, hopefully. <coughs> because longer than that is too long, I think, for a literary event. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's not entertainment, is it? <laughs> so... So this book's out now, and he'll be selling it at the end. Will you please welcome Jarrett Kovac? What are you going to read? Uh, just from the beginning of the book, <clears throat> and sorry, I, I should warn you that I don't actually think I have uh, the need for human connection that requires reading this successfully. So I will try to make it go as quickly as possible and as painlessly as possible. But if it seems like it's dragging, the, it'll be better when it's done. So uh, I'm just going to read parts of the introduction, which is called Thank You for Your Honesty. The last time anyone thanked me for my honesty was in an email sent by the Office of Development and Alumni Relations at New York University, an institution of higher learning centered in New York City's Greenwich Village. NYU has three distinguishing characteristics. The first is, the first is that it's my alma mater. I graduated in uh, 2002 AD after giving the university an absurd amount of money for an undergraduate degree. This is why the school begs me for more. It's like a junkie who can't stop. NYU's second distinction is its inhuman cost. Uh, in 2017 AD, the tuition was $46,170 per year. Throw in campus housing and administrative fees, and the total was $63,472. To put this in context, as of 2016 AD, the American median income was $57,617 per person. You can't charge $63,472 and expect much more than a mixture of the rich and the gullible. <laughs> the gullible emerged from NYU in a state of financial ruin, indebted for a substandard education that they could have received for about one-eighth of the price at a state-run university. Welcome to adulthood. Time to pay back $253,888 with compounding interest. The rich kids come out fine. The rich kids are always fine. The third thing that distinguishes NYU is its Abu Dhabi campus, which opened in 2014 AD. The idea, the idea behind the Abu Dhabi campus was to construct a mirror world NYU 
that bestowed the same substandard education and thus conferred the same substandard degree as the Greenwich Village campus. The only difference was that the Mirror World campus would be located on Happiness Island in the United Arab Emirates, an absolute monarchy funded by the world's seventh largest oil reserve. Nothing says academic freedom like petrol feudalism. <laughs> Before the Happiness Island campus had its grand opening, an article appeared in the New York Times which detailed the nature of NYU's new venture. The school's administration had arranged a deal with the government of the United Arab Emirates in which the oil monarchy would cover the whole expense and construction of the Mirror World campus. Picture this. A repressive regime renowned for its human rights abuses makes a deal with a bunch of very naive and very greedy American bureaucrats. What could possibly go wrong? The oil, monarch, the oil monarchy sent labor recruiters around the Indian subcontinent. The recruiters told people that they could make big money if they came to Abu Dhabi and helped build the Mirror World campus on Happiness Island. When the people of the Indian subcontinent arrived in Abu Dhabi, happiness proved elusive. The workers were struck in subhuman housing and paid dirt poor wages. When they tried to strike for the money they were promised, they had the shit beat out of them by the police. And the workers couldn't leave Happiness Island. Their passports had been confiscated. They were slaves. And although putting people into human bondage and making them build college campuses was a time-honored tradition, it had been a very long while since any American institution of higher learning had involved itself in this sort of disgrace. And I think that's where I'm going to stop. <laughs> you know, a lot of the book is about that, isn't it? About how it's impossible for the character, well, for the narrator, you, who keeps leaking into the narrative, to, to live a, a clean life. Everything contaminated, isn't it? And you yeah. start off with that, with that thing that even the, even the university went through. It's got, an, it's got a campus that's built on slave labor. Yeah, I, I think it's a really strange aspect of modern life and that everything now is exactly as you say, it's dirty. Yeah. And it is true that when uh, I started writing this book, very, right, right, around the same, right around the same time that The Future Won't Be, uh, the Future Won't Be Long came out, uh, I got this email from, which is later in the thing, which is the NYU guy being like, hey, do you wanna have coffee? Um, and I realized that they must have been using some kind of press clipping yeah. service because there'd been some, somewhere in that, my press, there'd been some mention of me at NYU. And it was just like, no, no. <laughs> you know, like I'm massively ashamed of going to this school. And, you know, like it was, a th it was one of these things where it's a kind of really terrible abuse that happened that got an article in the New York Times. I think maybe The Guardian piled on. Mm. Um, and then everyone sort of forgot it. The only real consequence that happened was the president of the university eventually ended up having to resign. But yeah. they're still running the campus. I mean, the, the, the bit you didn't get to is the, is the sort of punchline of that chapter where you send them a long email saying why you don't want anything to do with it. 
Um, and the guy replies, dear Mr. Kobeck, thank you for your response, your honesty and your candor. Best wishes. And, um, <laughs> yeah. It's almost like they can't process. I had a similar thing where I got asked to do a thing by Apple at the Apple shop where they, they film you in conversation with someone from Apple. And then this is put on the internet and sold as a download right. through um, you know, iTunes. And I went, oh, do I get any money for it? And they went, no. <laughs> uh, and I went, do I have any say in the edit? And they went, no. I went, well, what? There's, no, there's no incentive for me in it. You know? and, I, I, and I sort of didn't, I didn't want to do it really because I, I don't necessarily want to get involved with Apple. I, I didn't want to say that because it, you then get this virtue signaling accusation, right. you know, so I just didn't say it. But he kept emailing me back and saying it'd be really good for my exposure. I said I didn't really want any exposure, I didn't want to re meet anyone. Then in the end, the, the final email from the Apple guy was, I appreciate how appearing on an Apple download does not correspond with your brand. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it was, in, un, it was either unfathomable or he had chosen to ignore the idea that you could just not want to do something right. for some... For some ethical reason, it would all be about... There was no ethics involved now. It was about yeah. positioning yourself in relation yeah, to, yeah. To, to a thing. Well, I mean, the joke that I didn't read is that after I got that email, I realized that whenever anyone thanks you for your honesty, they're just saying, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, this, in... in um, in, uh, the, in, the, in the New York novel, there's not, you're not as present in it as you are right. in this. In this one, it seems like the conceit is that Jarrett Kobeck, the character of this writer, has tried to write what he thinks will be popular, which he says would be a sort of fantasy story, which in this instance is um, the, uh, the idea of fairyland princesses coming to Los Angeles in right. the modern world, but he can't deliver that narrative because his own anger and annoyance keeps getting the better of him, and actually the majority of the book is you r raging on about things <laughs> and then temporarily returning to this story, which right. then seems to make you even more annoyed by its own existence, and yet you've written it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I... So, when The Future Won't Be Long came out in the US, it did not do well. Um, and it not doing well is whatever. Uh, but I knew that I had to write... I, I, I had the sense that part well, of... For, for, yeah. for people that don't know, the, the, the I Hate the Internet did do really well. Yes. It was self-published, it got brilliant reviews, and it sold really well. Yeah, I, I Hate the yeah. Internet was a thing that essentially was a bunch of books in boxes under my bed, and yeah. then went completely haywire, and I'm... It seems to have stopped, but as recently as December, I was like supporting the Italian translation. Yeah, yeah. Um, then you talk about your next choice, writing about yourself in the third person in this book. You say, you describe this section as fan fiction about yourself. And you say, <laughs> after I Hate the Internet was released and succeeded beyond his wildest ambitions, Jarrett Kobeck couldn't imagine any direction other than going to one of the five major publishers. At the moment of his triumph, Jarrett Kobeck suffered a failure of imagination. He flung himself at Penguin Random House with all the vigour of a dog returning to its own vomit. <laughs> he allowed himself to be published in the trade dress of a literary writer. He revealed himself as a class pretender, as someone who believed that he could operate on the level of Jonathan Franzen as the kind of fraud 
who take that misbegotten Treblinka money and run, run, run. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, look, you don't look at me like you've written it. <laughs> no, well, it's, just it's true. It's you true. thought it. No, it it's true. It's true. Um, no, so about a week after The Future Won't Be Long came out in the US, it was clear to me that the book was going to fail. I knew it was going to fail. I, I, there's, I have a chain of emails going back months being like, if you publish it this way, it's going to fail. Um, so I started working on this, and I, I had this idea that maybe there would be Sorry, some... Sorry, can I ask till we get there? Yeah. When you said that you knew it was going to fail if you publish it in this way, do you mean that it was sort of packaged to look like it was one of those books about a load of people talking about things and having relationships? I mean, if it had been packaged like that, it would have been a right. miracle. Right. I, no, they, the cover that they, they put... Because it did okay here but the cover that Penguin put on it in the US, it looks like, you can't even tell what it is. Right. There's a photograph and it's blue and it's green. And you know, it's people, like the photograph is blurry, people are walking down the street. It just, it doesn't look like anything. If, it's, it's insane, if you put the US edition next to the UK edition, it looks like two totally different books. And but they were, but, but again, it was a totally different book to the book before. And this is a totally different book to those two. It seems like with each one, yeah. well, up, the only constant is the writer keeps getting irritated by his own <laughs> books. <laughs> well, with this, so anyway, let me finish this okay. story, please. <laughs> if I finish this story, we'll get much further. All right, okay. um, well, so, it's a shame you don't apply that logic. <laughs> There's a beginning and a middle and an end. Um, and they're in the right order. Yeah. So, no. Uh, anyway, I started writing this, and I was like, I will do a fantasy novel, but the joke will be, it will be in the tone of I hate the internet, and that will be funny, and that will be inherently funny. Um, so I wrote, essentially, a full first draft that doesn't have any of the interruptions. Yeah. Because what had happened... Can I read that? <laughs> uh, I don't know if I still have it, but oh, right, yeah, okay. maybe. There's a lot more about fairyland. <laughs> oh, okay. so, um, and it w but by the time that I finished it, I knew that any hope I had of being published by one of the five companies in the U.S. that control 97% of U.S. publishing was just over that the commercial failure of The Future Won't Be Long had destroyed any hope I had of continuing to be published on that level. And then I realized that, well, I realized a few things. One is how terrible. Two, that it was an incredibly funny position to be in because if you're never gonna be let back in, why wouldn't you just piss all over the door yeah. anyway? <laughs> And then the other thing was, these five companies, not all of them, but three of the five have really unfortunate histories. Like Penguin Random House is now owned by Bertelsmann, which spent much of World War II collaborating with the Nazis and publishing Nazi propaganda. So, you know, you guys won the war for something, you're, you're vaunted, Penguin now is, you know, owned by Germans. But anyway, 
but that this was like the tonal place where you could write a book where you just were like, well, fuck it, I'll burn it all down because mm. there's no way I'm possibly getting back in. And even if I did, had gone the normal route and maybe after five or six years, somehow was able to get published at the same level again. I, I mean, it was awful the first time. Why would I ever want to go back? So I thought what I would do would be to encompass this idea into the book and be like, well, this is why the narrative Jared Kovac is writing about fairyland. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know, it, it, it turned into whatever this is because once you start doing that, it's like, well, I can do anything. Yeah. You know, like I've already destroyed this thing so much that the book can now be anything. Yeah. So that, that, that is one of the central comic conceits, isn't it? The, 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 it's a story about the, um, the, the, the author in this, Jarek Kovac, proposes to write a novel to try and cash in on contemporary trends for fantasy, like Wonder Woman films and Game of Thrones and stuff, by writing a story about um, the Queen of Fairyland and her assistant coming to, to LA to track down her missing daughter. Um, but instead of being written, as you say, in the style of one of those books, it's written as if, as if you don't want to write it. And, um, <laughs> or, or with really great, deliberately bad writing, like... Um, <laughs> Uh, but Fairyland hadn't gone invisible by being lost in an aquarium. Really sort of awkward sentences, um, as, if they, as if they're sort of... as if the writer just can't be bothered with that bit of it. <laughs> they, well, had, they had magicked up an internet connection. <laughs> <laughs> and used it to pirate television shows and films produced in Los Angeles, which they then watched on a television they'd magicked up out of some old twigs and a bit of wood. <laughs> <laughs> but then the other bits of it are incredibly eloquent. So it's yeah. honestly the, well, the, it the, the, this, the, the book, fancy bit, it's like book, it's beneath you. This book took longer to write than yeah. anything I've ever worked on yeah. because it takes an enormous amount of time to write this badly. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just, um, trying desperately to not do anything literary yeah. Yeah. and just, just not wanting to have anything even remotely close takes a lot. Yeah, we don't need to stress that's in those sections. Yeah. It's not the yeah. whole, yeah, in the, yeah, yeah. In the, in the fairyland bits. Um, you might, you might, one of the, the writer seems to initially lose confidence in the fairyland idea because of anxieties about things like how people say going to see the Wonder Woman film is a political act because it had a female lead in yeah. an action film. He seems like he's, he loses confidence in the idea of writing a fantasy thing because it's sort of been co-opted as propaganda, yeah. the fantasy genre. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I had this really odd experience. I went to the, the house of these friends of mine, really close friends, and everyone was in the kitchen and everyone was expressing uh, you know, very right-thinking liberal platitudes about Donald Trump and about the war and all of this stuff. And then 10 minutes later, somehow everyone decided they wanted to watch Game of Thrones. And 
<laughs> so then I went, and I, I, like, and I had never seen Game of Thrones before that. I've since seen it all, God help me. Um, and I read all the books because I felt like if I was going to shit on George R.R. Martin, I should have a reason. Um, but so I went and I, I, and I watched them watching it, and it was so weird because it was like one of, one of the episodes of the season where it's like some giant battle and everyone's just cheering. It's like, this is just war porn, you know, like... What else could it possibly be? This is war porn for liberals in the U.S. We, we are a warrior society. You know, that, even if people are in opposition to it, the assumptions of that society somehow trickle in. Okay, well, I think that the, the viewers of it would see it as escapism, but it's interesting because what you're sort of describing is the situation that you've, that you've written in this book where you, you, the, the, the writer tries to write escapism, but in the current climate. All the anything in it can trigger him back to anxieties about the modern world. Yeah, well, <clears throat> one of the things that inspired that, which was something that I, you know, happened in addition to all of the things that I just said, is I had done a lot of the book, and then Me Too happened, and I realized that there was no way you could publish the book as it was without everyone thinking it was some kind of far-right allegory mm. against me, too. Yeah, because, because the, 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 the fairies live in a sort of Amazonian Wonder Woman-type yeah. culture of only women, and they kill any men that go there. Yeah, and, yeah. and the, the thing about that is it's all taken... But you started that before me, too. Yeah, before yeah. me, too. And it's all taken from all of those characters in that actual setting is taken from this piece of Elizabethan pulp fiction called The Most Pleasant History of Tom Lincoln um, that is actually kind of an interesting book, but basically shitty. Uh, and in it, there is, you know, there's this weird section where the main character goes to fairyland, and fairyland is this island where all of the men have been expelled or killed, and my initial impulse was like, well, that just sounds like Wonder Woman. And that's a way to sort of satirize this. You know, a couple of months later, it's just like, fuck, I'm writing right-wing propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In this book, did you, were you... In this book, the, the Jarrett Kobeck narrator that keeps leaking into the, into the story and getting in the way of it and, you know having to go on his own tangents from it seems more he seems more angry than in the previous books and he seems to be he seems to be anxious about the fact that on some level uh, sort of liberal media thought it was thought that it, it would be fun to give platforms to people like Trump and make stars out of them and to and, and now it's come back to bite them and you, you seem to hold people accountable for that in this? Well, I live in Los Angeles, um, and post-Trump, L.A. suddenly discovered politics, um, and discovered it with all of the mental acuity that you would imagine people who hadn't thought about politics for their entire lives um, would discover it with. And it made it a really annoying place to live. Um, 
And the thing that, you know, one of the things that's really weird about it is that Trump is the product of the entertainment industry. He, the thing, and I can't remember if it's in the book or not, but like, when he announced his presidency, a couple of months later, he was the guest host on Saturday Night Live. And it's like Saturday Night Live now is apparently, you know, an outpost of media resistance to Trump. Yeah. But they're the ones who had him on the fucking thing in the yeah. first place. I mean, place. comedy did a similar thing here with, with Boris Johnson, where yeah. it, it, panel shows entertained the idea that he was amusing, and he sort of learned from them that if he yeah. presented a caricature of himself, he could sort of get in by, by stealth as a reasonable, as a reasonable figure. And, um, you know, and that, that has unleashed that in the same sort of way. Yeah. So it compl I can completely understand. But, I mean, it, it, it does seem... But you do seem to have, you do, you does seem to have lost hope in this, though. I mean, that's the, that, well. well, my career is in a very bad place. You know, huh? my career is in a very bad place. Well, you've got to come here. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, I don't. I don't feel like he's. The, I, the, okay, the, the narrator character, you, in this, doesn't seem to see a way out of the fact that all our information is controlled by a few companies, that our opinions are manipulated by them. Yeah, that. well, I think that's something we just have to live with now. Um, you know, 20 companies control almost the entirety of creative expression in the US that gets any coverage or any interaction beyond a very local level. And it's not to say that people aren't doing things that don't fall under that umbrella, but it, you know, I think even now, like, I hate the internet being self-published. If I were doing that now, that book never would have worked in the way that it did. Why? Partly the climate has changed, but also I think um, there, is the, there has been the realization that Trump is incredibly good for business and mm -hmm. trying to get anything through that narrow gate is really difficult, you know? I mean, I had this idea <laughs> after I hate the internet, which I never would have done, but I realized that when Trump was elected, I had set myself up, if I wanted to do it, to just make an enormous amount of money, because you could have done a book, I could have done a book about Trump, and I, and if that had been the follow-up to I hate the internet, it would have just been enormous, right? If you use that narrative style, that narrative voice, all of that stuff to write about Trump, it would have, and you know, you had a book that was very reassuring about the idea that this didn't represent some enormous sea change in American life and could somehow be resisted. You know, I could have, Penguin would have published the fuck out of that, you know? <laughs> Can I read some bits out and see if they, and see what you say about them? Sure. Most of the comparisons between this book and the writings of the late Kurt Vonnegut will occur in cheap little reviews on goodreads.com and amazon.com, which are internet websites owned by a guy named Jeff Bezos. These websites are where the American readership makes sure that American authors know their fucking place <laughs> and further ensures American authors know that their place is the equivalent to that of a moon-faced kid being shoved into some mud by a bully. How do you like that mud, you little shit? asked the American readership. 
This is what happens when you try to do anything. Fucking eat it, you pick. <laughs> now, you are aware, presumably, that that popping up out of the middle of the rest of it, it looks like the author's just lost all control of it. <laughs> but you are, I mean, you've done, you've... You've got enough self-awareness to know yeah. that, haven't you? It's a, it's a construct to some yeah. extent. No, the, the, the narrative, Jared Kovac, in this book, um, and I hate the internet, there was a fictional analog, J. Jehanem, which was the idea of me, if I was slightly dumber than I actually am, and it was like, yeah. like a kind of making fun of myself, which I don't think anyone got. Okay, well, do you find yourself doing this, which I do now, I sometimes think... <laughs> I'll read about someone and I'll go, what would I think of that if I were real? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, what would I think of that if I were real? Because you know, sort of, I, I, I yeah. have to make a distinction between, between the me that I right. do on stage and yeah, me yeah. in my life. And I, and I have less self-control on stage and I don't, I don't right. edit in the, in, my, in the same way. And I, I'm also... He's, he's, he's someone that wants to look like he's better than other people, and right. you know, and uh, and I am all those things. But I, we, I use, <laughs> I, suppre yeah, yeah. I suppress them, you know. And it seems like there's, yeah. I, I mean, you know, it, it, it struck me that if I was going to commit career suicide, that there was no point holding back on any of it. And I think that animates most of the book, where it's just like. Every writer thinks that, you know, when they... I mean, I don't actually even read my reviews. I, I'm not like you. I don't have this need for constant self-flagellation. <laughs> um, I, I ignore everything that's written about me. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't think I've talked to a single writer who doesn't find the reviews on Amazon and Goodreads anything but annoying. So... Why not? You know, why not? And it's like, it's also a kind of in, uh, insurance, right? Because people can give you bad reviews, but you've already insulted them so much. Yeah, you've got in first. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, a lot of the, the people that the, 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 the narrator of Jarrett Kovic seems to hate, I mean, it's me. I feel like it's... A, some oh, of yeah, it is no, an attack it, on it, me, not, well, I think, not as an individual. Well, just... Yeah, no, I mean, I think it, maybe it's an attack on the, uh, the stage, Stuart Lee. Well, the, the, the metaphorical Jared yeah. Kovac is waging war on <laughs> the construct of yourself. No, you know, no, no I don't mean, but I mean, the things, that, the things that, I mean, I am that, I am that person who only realised at the last minute that Brexit was going to happen and Trump was going to get in, and right. I, because I'm in that, I'm yeah, in that, yeah, yeah bubble that he's annoyed yeah. with in this, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, with Trump, it was really strange. It was clear to me, because because of I Hate the Internet, I went on kind of a tour through the Midwest, yeah. and I hadn't been there in 10 years, and it was so ruined. And I was like, oh, fuck, he's going to win. Yeah. I didn't think he was going to win until I went on that. And then I sort of noticed that the people... I knew, which were very, which was a small number of them who thought Trump was going to win, were either people who weren't white or who had grown up poor. Um, and when you would be around people who who were like, "No, don't worry, Hillary's going to get it," 
if you said Trump was going to win, it was as if you'd like taken a shit in the living room. <laughs> you know, it was, it, was, it was really a way to bring conversations to a dead hall. Um, and it's like, it was coming, yep. you know? It was coming, and, and, and you ignored it, Stuart Lee. <laughs> <laughs> and it's your fault. Yeah, but if I was real, I would have ignored it. Right, yeah. yeah. Man's had enough. <laughs> one, thing, one thing that's great about this and, uh, and I hate the internet is that they only work as novels this isn't, um, and I, you know you've been to see Alan Moore this week and he, was, he said something great about this once that he was, he was sick of um, people thinking that the purpose of the highest state of grace for a comic were if it could be adapted into a film right. and he said he wanted to write comics that had a relationship with what with what comics could do, and that if they could be adapted into a film, it meant that they'd failed in some way, right? right? And th this is sort of unadaptable because it because the, you know you can't you can't you can't do anything with it other than this format because right. because it plays so many games with who's talking, the narrative being interrupted. I don't know how you would present the fantasy elements of it in a in a filmic way that um, that reflected the fact that in this the writer has kind of underwritten them on purpose you, right. know, you can't do it and it's really great to see, to see it's really great to see a thing that is the thing that it wants right. to be it's not waiting for some, you get this with stand up people writing sets that they hope will get them spotted for acting roles in things rather yeah. than explore, exploiting the form itself right. and um, what, what you know where, where do you go where, where do you go from here with this approach what do you do how do you make the next book even more <clears> like a book and less like it could ever be anything else uh that's a good question. I mean, I'm not, I don't know if there are more books, to be honest. This, I feel like I may have written myself out with this and some other stuff that I've done recently. Maybe the end of me writing fiction, um, because, you know, the fiction in this is so... Yeah, mean. but is this, is, is this a fiction? I mean, I mean... It's not, but there, it's it started not, I mean, as one, you know, and it's this like... This is a description of you. This is a true description of you trying to write... Saying that you want to write a successful fantasy novel and not being able to because you keep writing about other things. <laughs> I mean, it's it actually what well, the, the book it reminds me a lot of weirdly is um, the London Adventure by Arthur Macken, where oh, yeah, he, you yeah, know yeah. he got he got um, yeah. you know that he, yeah. He, yeah I mean he, he he was a as well as being this great you know fantasy writer and mystical he was a, a, a hack you know and he got offered some money to write a book about London and he wrote a book about. Not, not being able to write a book about London because he gets sort of <laughs> distracted by things in his room and doesn't really go anywhere and then handed it in. And it was technically what they'd asked for. And, it's, it's sort of, and it's kind of... It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't do what he says he's going to do. So it isn't, it's not... I don't, you don't need to feel constrained. I'm still encouraging you, but you don't, you don't, <laughs> you don't need to feel constrained. You're only constrained if you have a rigorous idea of what fiction is. And this yeah, is, you might be right. I, don't, I, I came up oh, yeah. with... Um, a couple of days ago, I was thinking about it, um, and I came up with an idea that I wish was in the book because it's a very good explanation of what's happening in the book, yeah. which is if you think about painting and you think about there was a moment basically from the, and maybe from the Renaissance on where painting got closer and closer and closer to sort of photoreal, what yeah. we would call photorealism. Yeah. And then there's the moment where photography is introduced mm. 
and everyone's like, well, we can't do that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think what this book really is, is at least my attempt, unconsciously, of recognizing that the internet may actually just be better at traditional forms of writing than the novel is, right? You can get an 800-word morality play about Kanye West that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and has this kind of, you know, the same kind of resonance yeah, that right. a, people used to get out of fiction. Well, in, you know, in all your books, you, you seem to have some bit where you talk about Hen Henry James novels being these kind of uh, a accurate descriptions of people in places right. interacting with each other, like pho photorealist, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and none of your books do that. They, they, no. they show that they can do that by doing right. little bits of it, right. but then explode it and dismantle it and yeah. introduce all other bits of shrapnel into the, into yeah. the, into the messing up the, the, the canvas. And yeah. it's, it's, it seems to me that in every one, you, you, you obviously have loved novels historically and you're trying to find a new idea of what, what the novel form is now that so many aspects of what it used to do have been usurped by technology and social media. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I, I mean... And when I you think, find it, then yeah. you can say you're not writing another novel, <laughs> but at the moment... Maybe that is it, though. What if this is... I mean, not this book, but what if this kind of incredibly fragmented style actually is the future of writing? There are people much younger than me, you know, whose relation, yeah. <laughs> Who's, whose relationship to how they read is so different yeah. than anything like mine could be. What do, what do novels look like for them? I don't know. You, you, know, talk, about this, you talk in this about, about how the idea, you, got, you, you get angry about how the idea that reading in of itself is seen as some sort of virtue to read a novel. Right. Yeah. It's kind of worthwhile thing to do. <laughs> Yeah. And yet you have written three of them. So <laughs> <laughs> you simply hope people will read them. Well, you know, I don't know. I, I, I am nothing if not a person who will double down on a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> do, you th do, you th do you buy the idea that you're actually, you're actually in a sort of aggressive, critical relationship with the form of the novel because you actually love them and you want, you want it to be, you want to test its elastic limits. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. No, I mean, when I, was, when I was a teenager reading and fiction in particular, um, I don't know, that was the main thing. There were other things going on, yeah. but the, the through line of my life has always been a relationship to books and other people's writing and to fiction. Um, but at a certain point, I'm not sure fiction has kept up with whatever this world is we live in. Does it seem strange to you now, the idea that the novelist wouldn't be present in his own novel as a character? Because we, because we, are, aware that they're, we are aware that they are a construct. Right. So it seems... I mean, partly, part of me really hates it when that stuff is present. I, I, you know, in an act of incredible hypocrisy, having written this, I get completely irritated when I read other people's presence in their own work. Yeah. Um, like, you can't buy 
It's not, it's not fiction, but you cannot buy a book about David Bowie, for instance, without an introduction that starts about how someone found an album yeah. in 1977. So I don't read the introduction. That's every books. introduction I've ever written. Yeah, I know, so I know. I just but I don't, I don't read the introductions to books yeah. anymore yeah. when they're nonfiction because it's invariably about the, the, the presentation of the self. Um, and I mean, I'm really aware that I have done something in this book that I actually find distasteful. And what is that? What, what? what is the specific thing? Uh, I mean, most writers aren't interesting. Right? Most writers are kind of boring people. I, I'm not that interesting. Um, but the presentation of self seems like, in this particular case, seemed kind of inevitable because the book had broken down, you know, and I didn't know what else to do. So, but I, I don't know. I mean, it, probably that is the future. You know, the future is going to be... I'm going to just look at this one bit where there is the presence, the presence of the self in this, and you, and you are, and I think it is interesting that you, that you and your friend here, have got photos of when you managed to get in the mosh pit at the last Guns N' Roses tour, yeah. and that is an indication of how far the book deviates from its stated aim. <laughs> <laughs> that has nothing to do with what it was supposed to be about. It's a good bit. Well, it does, and everything. <clears throat> but this is the beginning of another strange thing in the book, which is I, one of the things that I had been thinking about was that the history of much of Western art is Christian art, and Christian art um, is now the most discredited possible thing you could do. And so I wanted to try to write like a Christian novel. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a believer. Don't worry, London. Um, but the idea that there could be some engagement with this thing that had animated an enormous amount of Western culture and is so low and so debased now. Um, and how do you write a Christian novel? And part of the answer is you suggest that a photograph of your friend from Bangladesh dressed like a circus performer in the pit at Guns N' Roses is you seeing the face of God. Well... <clears throat> I, 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 I actually think about that as a, as a, as a metaphor, not as a, not as a literal thing, but seeing... seeing people around London and seeing how they get treated and thinking about... I was on a tube, actually, and um, uh, a Romanian woman was going along with a paper cup, singing that polyphonic singing that they do, um, and uh, begging for money, and uh, no one really gave her anything. I have to, because I'm a minor celebrity, and if I don't, <laughs> I, I saw Stuart Lee didn't give money to that woman. But... Um, but Anyway, the woman on, in, opposite me made a horrible face at her and didn't give her any money, and I noticed the woman opposite me was wearing a crucifix, right? Yeah. So after the uh, old woman had got off, I leant forward and I went, that was him, that was Jesus then. <laughs> and, and, uh, but I do think it's quite, a, it's quite a useful way of thinking about 
the, the people you see in, in wretched state. Right. It's a really useful... I, I, I did, I, I really liked all the stuff about what the main, the main fairy character, Celia, thinks of Christ, and um, because she can't, she can't square up how his, um, how his value system is adopted by America, which doesn't, right. which doesn't seem to live those values. I like this little scene, and I wondered if you could explain why your Roman centurion is speaking in a Newcastle dialect, <laughs> and how you, as an American, were able to do this so accurately. This crazy hick showed up in sophisticated old Jerusalem where everyone posted on social media about a decline of society. And he spoke of love and forgiveness and mercy and brotherhood. And he told the people of Jerusalem that they didn't have to follow the scripts of their lives. So they killed him. He was crucified, given the lowest of all deaths. Ow, that really hurt, said Jesus, when the Roman legionnaire Casca Longinus thrust his spear into Jesus' side. Give a fuck me, said Casca Longinus. <laughs> Had away and shite, you puff. How do you even know what that is? <laughs> no one outside Newcastle knows what that is. Uh, spend a lot of time on the internet. All oh, right, okay. Um, but no, you know, the thing, <clears throat> the thing about that in particular is that the Cascalonginus is the protagonist of a series of incredibly bad novels that were published. There used to be a genre of publishing called men's adventure fiction. Oh, yeah. And um, it died out in about 1985, but people would buy millions of these books. And it's this guy, Barry Sadler, um, who wrote the song, The Ballad of the Green Berets. He went to seed and then 20 years later re-emerged as a novelist, and he wrote, he wrote the first book, and I think the subsequent books were ghost-written, but he wrote this book <laughs> about the, the legionnaire who spears Christ accidentally getting some of Jesus' blood in his mouth, and then it curses him for all time, so all he can do is just like wait for Jesus to come back. And while he's waiting for Jesus to come back, the only thing he knows how to do is go to war. Um, and so it's this, this series where it's just like this weird Roman legionnaire is serving the Panzerfaust in, in, in World War II, or the first one, he's a Vietnam vet. Um, and I don't know, I, I thought that if, if, you know, the character is a really rough character, so that's probably how he would speak. Yeah. Um, that's the same... Um... That's the same character as that, that rather unfair uh, showbiz story about John Wayne about, you know that? Where he's, John Wayne plays that character in um, Cecil B. DeMille's film about the life of Christ. And he has to look up at Jesus on the cross and say, truly this was the son of God. And he said that and Cecil B. DeMille said to John Wayne, can you do it with more awe? And he said, oh, surely this was the son of God. <laughs> Can we take questions from the Why audience? Why not? Has anyone got any? Yes, sir, there were the glasses. Thanks. Um, I was wondering, you said that you don't like authors putting themselves into the book. Is that because it, it kind of stereotypically comes off as amateurish? Or is it something more complex? Um, I don't know if it's amateurish. It just, there's... If you're not very careful about it, there's a kind of 
self-regard, which can threaten to overwhelm the narrative, of which I am very guilty of in, the, in this book. Um, but I don't know. It, when it works, I think it really works. When it doesn't work, I think it can just be kind of embarrassing for everyone. Um, you know, one of, my, one of my favorite books is uh, The Coldest Winter Ever by Sister Soldier. Um, and that book's amazing. She, she's in it as a character who's just giving life advice to the protagonist of the book. And that works incredibly well. But, you know, like Sister Soldier is a woman who has had a life. Um, I'm not sure every writer necessarily has. You know, like there has to be some weight to that presence. Or maybe you can go in the exact opposite and be really nihilistic about it. You know, like uh, the, the, the bete noir of the moment, Brett Easton Ellis, that horror novel he did where he just portrays himself as the worst person on the planet. Um, I don't know, that works. But a lot of the times, I just, th I just don't think it works that well. And I, I actually used to desperately try to keep myself out of, out of the work. And then it just, when, particularly with what I hate the internet, it just sort of crept in as this grotesque self-parody. Like, that character is such a hilarious joke on myself that no one would get because, <laughs> <laughs> because why would they know? You know, there's like five people who might know. Ne anyone? Uh, next one? Uh, yes. But, oh, the, that man's going to come with the, um, with the sound. Yeah. Might you explain the title of the book? Yeah. Uh, Crass. The Americans Burn in Hell. Um, the book had about 70 titles. I mean, we worked through so many of them. Uh, and then I would think of one and it would just be, I, I think the first one I had was you'll never guess what happens. <laughs> um, and then, I don't know, like Serpent's Tale didn't like that. Yeah. I think by the time they even got it, I didn't like it. And then there was one that was like, heterosexuality is a bullshit con on women. Um, <laughs> and that one was roundly opposed by everyone. Um, <laughs> And, and this woman who works at a restaurant near my apartment was like, that's a terrible title. And, and do, you, do you think with, with, with entertaining the idea of those titles, with changing stylistically between things, with, um, with, with, um, with attacking the publishing industry uh, within the books, do you feel that you, that you have a degree of self-doubt and you need to know that people are really, really liking the books in of themselves and so you put all these obstacles in the way to prove that they so that they have to they, you, know, you know that it's, it's the, the, the thing itself is the thing they must have liked because there's sort of there's stuff keeping them away almost no okay no <laughs> no no I, I mean I would be the, the ideal situation for me would be a book that everyone buys for a present and never actually reads themselves, yeah. and gives to someone who doesn't actually read the book. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not, I don't really care that much right. if, if people read them or not. Um, I, I, uh, the hope I would, because I, I actually, I would, I would say, for the, 
all of the ways that we've described the book as being jagged, it's also very easy to read. Yeah. Um, and I try to make them as easy as possible to read. Yeah. So there must be some part yeah. of me. I, I, I feel like there is some deal that you make with people where I can't be that kind of obscurantist. Um, like I, I want it to be as comprehensible or, or, com or comprehensible as possible. Yeah, actually, there is, no, there is no element in them whatsoever of someone showing off. Yeah. There's no element of that. There's no, yeah, there's no element of, I mean, I, I, I sometimes write in unnecessarily flowery language when I'm writing prose because I have at the back of my mind that the person writing it, me, will worry that people think he's not a very good writer, so he tries to overwrite it to prove that he can. Right. But there's a, but there's a, there's, not, there's none of that. It's really confident. It's a really confident. No, I, I mean, I want to be as bad a writer as possible. Yeah. You know, like I, particularly with this book, I really wanted to have as little of that. Yeah. As as I could. Um. Next one. Any, uh, yes, madam. There. No, no. Here comes a mic coming up there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was wondering if each of you agree with something that I think Amanda Iannucci and um, other sort of comedians and writers have expressed, this idea that political satire is, is dead now because real politics has gone far beyond anything that satire did. You're the, you're the real comedian. Well, this, yeah, so. this is... This is there's loads of those ideas in this as well. Yeah. I, I, well all right. I, okay. I, the, the problem. The, the problem is that. Um, well, there are so many, and I'm, I'm about to start writing a new show, and I don't know where to begin, really, because, first of all, there isn't a consensus about what's true. So um, you might make a joke about something that is actually happening, and then loads of people say that's not the case. That's something George Soros has paid you to say, or something like that, which I've actually had. Things like that, you know, um, and uh, uh, also the—I the, uh, don't know exactly how this works in the states, but the, the, the tr your traditional your traditional enemies don't make sense anymore because party politics has fragmented along the lines of Brexit. So you find yourself, depending on what your position on Brexit is, you find yourself supporting people who historically you would have disliked if they. If they have taken whatever your position is on, on Brexit, if you'd be fighting your corner on that, you've got you've got weird alliances saying the Brexit party of people that used to be Marxists and people that used to be on the far right. So you can't really get a grip of what that is. It's really hard to it's really hard to do. Also, we were talking about this in the in the dressing room before. I think that um, people on the on the on the on the right who traditionally didn't really do comedy terribly well have. Um, learnt the mechanisms of it and are able to use their, the media they control to promote, to promote their um, own acts, if you like. So it's sort of, there's all sorts of things up in the air. Also, I, I'm aware, and I'm more, more aware of it having read Jarrett's book, which is an attack on me, as I say, is that, um, <laughs> is that, is that you, you, if you are a 50-year-old man who... Uh, thought political correctness was a good idea in the 80s, subscribed to the idea that there were certain liberal values that were inalienable, you know, that were true, that were objectively true, then um, you're under attack everywhere, you're blamed for things, and you can't really go on stage or write about those things without a self-awareness that you, you need to take on board the idea that you're 
held, held responsible in some way for lots of things that have gone wrong. So it's really, I think it is a difficult time to be doing it. Um, <clears throat> I think the answer, or my answer, would be no, I, I don't think it's dead at all. I, th I think um, one of the things with this book that I tried to do was eliminate any content or any opinion that could actually come from anyone else. Um, and I, the thing about a lot of the stuff that gets, that we, see, we would see as uh, a target of satire is if you're approaching it from whatever the surface uh, story is, that's really hard to satirize. But there's always like a million layers beneath it. And I don't know, those often go unexplored, you know. Um, maybe you can't satirize uh, the utterances of Trump, but you certainly can satirize the fact that we all jump at them like yeah. dogs, right? Where like... And, and also the way in which, as horrible as they are, they seem to, the reaction to them seems to be more about the American president not having good table manners <laughs> than it actually seems to be about any real American discomfort with the underlying evils of, of that position. You know, um, when... George Bush the first died uh, two or three months ago or whatever it was, the way he was portrayed in, in his moment of death was as, you know, like, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could go back to this? And it's like, Bush was horrible. I mean, Bush, I think, probably killed, certainly is more directly or indirectly responsible for more people being killed than Trump is. I mean, he's got time. Give him some time. But that, that, that's the bottom line yeah. for you in this, isn't it? Every, every tangent comes back to a body count. Yeah. Of, of, of um, you know, the West generally, but America specifically, it comes back to a body count of people that have been killed. Yeah, and I, and I think this is where the needless picking on Game of Thrones and Wonder Woman actually serves some function, which is, it's a really, really strange thing to be in a country that is going through a kind of political hysteria, which is justified in some ways, and never have anyone talk about any of the most basic consequences of what American politics do. And like since 9-11, one of the functions of the presidency has been to blow up as many Muslims as you can. And it's like, that never gets talked about. I mean, it's kind of indirectly, but it's like, for me, I find it really hard to understand, even though I fully find Trump totally horrific, it's really hard for me to understand how the dignity of that office can be besmirched when both the historical and the current function of that office has been to wage war on 
countries that are very, very far away. And often when that war is waged on people who, you know, have no idea what's coming, you know, like, and, and so it's just strange. It's like we've entered this national dialogue about, oh, the terrible things he's doing to the office. And it's like, uh, the office does terrible things. Next question, anyone? Yes, madam. Hi. Um, I wish I read the books before I came. I would have had more questions. <laughs> um, I was unprepared. So, in terms of object relations, how do you identify yourself with the characters in your book? What do you feel about that? And what's the purpose of it? Like, do you feel yourself in the book when you interfere? Do you feel like a, a godlike position? <laughs> Any sorry, message? What was, wait, what was it? What was the last part of that? Um, in the last, last, last sentence, you yeah, are. Yeah, the last sentence. Okay. I just didn't so catch it. So, when you write the book as an author, yes, you are in control of everything. Right. The, what's the ideal for you? And and it's, I, I, in my opinion, mm -hmm. I feel like when the writer, when they are writing a book and when they are giving a message to people, do you have that purpose and do you feel like in a godlike position that you interfere ideally, but in reality, God doesn't interfere? Okay, well, I think, I, I, do, you, do you feel like, the, do you feel like the, na the narrative's there and, the, and, you, you're, and it's, you're guiding it or your job to obstruct it? Is it, is it that? Is it, are you... I mean, sometimes it feels like it's there. With this one, uh, no. I mean, this was, this is, you know, it was thought about and edited and refined and put together in such a way that it actually functions. This is a lot of random threads. Well, try, and then... There's a, bit, there's a bit at the end, for example, well, it, 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 what would be the end, but then the book's got, it's about a third more of it after that, where <laughs> you... you well, no, you, you, you talk at this yourself where Celia, the Queen of Fairyland, and her assistant are searching for the missing daughter, and they work out that she could be at one of 50 places in L.A., and we follow them going to all these different places. Then they finally get to the place that she is at, um, and you talk about how, in a normal novel, this section would take about 4,000 words because you'd build up tension, describing them in the alleyway outside the building and how they'd go upstairs and where they would discover her and how long this would normally take, and then you deliberately decide to do it in about 250 words, where they just, got, they went up the stairs and she was in the room, and then, they, and then, and so you, it seems to me at points where you, you have fun with, with, with changing where the emphasis should be, where the rhythm should right. be in that, in the, in the story part of a novel, mm -hmm. and then throwing the focus onto the, onto the other bits. Yeah. And I, telling us that, you tell us that you're going to do it, and then you do it anyway as well. Yeah, uh, I don't know. It, it, the, there were certain ideas that I wanted to get across in the book. I wanted to do a narrative about fairyland um, and make it sound like it had been narrated by someone who, you know, by like a guy you would run into in a pub, by like a drunk rummy. Yeah. Um, and 
those are that is not a wide that is not a particularly wide brief in terms of constraining your constraining what you can do. And one of the thing one of the things about doing a book about supernatural creatures, which is my theory as to why people really like superhero movies, is that those are characters that can do anything. And I think people really like to see characters that can do anything because people engage with media to see kind of narrative rupture. And if someone can suddenly fly or can do anything, yeah. um, but having introduced that into the text, then it's suddenly like, well, you know, if these people can do anything, right. the book itself can do anything. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something with narrative structure now, right? Which is in the shape of this evening. I'm going to, right? If this, it, you'll know if the next question is a good one, because I'm gonna, if it is, I'm going to end this on it. Right? And if I'll go to another one, you'll know that your question wasn't good enough to end it evening. Right. So, there's one up the back there. We've had none from the back. Um, the, um, the Queen of Fairyland has come up a few times in this interview, but <clears throat> my, my favourite character is these, the Saudi prince. And um, I'm wondering how that character took shape. Um, his voice, which is not at all like what I would imagine a Saudi prince's voice to be, and and his predilections, his tastes, and you know his sexual tastes. And that, yeah, that is good. There's a there's a character of a Saudi prince who goes throughout the novel, who overlaps with various parts of it. He's a sort of playboy in the States from the El Saud family, isn't he? And he knows his way around popular culture and hip-hop and hallucinogenic drugs and the S&M scene. And he, but he, and he seems to be someone who is able to stand outside everyone else's values and comment on them. Is it based on a particular person? No, no. Um, although, it is, isn't it? And you just no, dare no, 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 no. worried about it. No, it, it's, it's truly not. Um, that character appears in I Hate the Internet, but it's a one-note joke. And the one-note joke is just that someone is working for this Saudi prince who's funding their media company, and, you know, he keeps dragging them, he keeps dragging this other character to, like, brothels. Yeah. Um, and the joke doesn't work that well in I Hate the Internet, and the reason why it doesn't work is because I hadn't figured out the other side of the equation. And so the other side of the equation is... By day, he's a neoliberal philanthropist. And by night, he, he, he's like Batman. He rides around the city making the world sane through essentially torturing sex workers or torturing anyone. Um, and then the other component of that character, which is the least true thing, uh, is that he really believes in literacy. Um, and so he's really, really well-read and really, really clued in to the history of the world. And what, how he functions in this book, in my opinion, is he functions like the monster in a horror novel where he makes occasional appearances and everything goes haywire and he makes occasional another occasional appearance and then he's at the very end of the book and you know, delivers what I think is perhaps the ultimate message of the book, if there is one. Um, 
and yeah, I don't know. That's it's it's, it's a character that is. I don't know. It's a, he's a funny character. That's about. That's what you. Can We're going to have to go for another question yeah. because that 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 narrowed the focus to one character. It was a good right. question, but it should have come about five minutes ago. So that could be the last one then. Jared, you said that you don't uh, like re reading reviews on Amazon of yes. your work. If you could review your own work, what would you say? And would you be proud of it? Some, um, someone uh, at Serpent's Tale showed me one of the early reviews of this book. And the pull line, because I, I didn't read the review, I just sort of, they'll send sentences, I think, to make me feel better. Um, the sentence said something like, uh, one-fourth absolute tripe, three-fourths genius. I think my review, my review would probably invert the equation, <laughs> and that would, be, that would be what I would do. Three-fourths genius, is, that's pretty good, though, isn't it? Yeah, I thought so. I, I think yeah. it's, realistically speaking, it's probably half and half, you know? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to three-quarters genius, <laughs> Jarrett Kovacs.